IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss the new album by Interpol. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He wore a foxing shirt to the January 6th hearing, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, you know, not not to pull a rage against the machine and, like, start talking politics to our listeners out of nowhere, but, you know, if, if, if the winds of fate put me on TV representing some sort of alt-right uh, group, I'm wearing a proto martyr T-shirt. You know, it's revenge for that song they wrote about me. I'm just oh, like that is like the single most effective way to like get a band on Twitter and start disavowing their fan base. Uh, A little uh, psyops there on on your part. If you're going to be, I am playing the long game. Uh, That'd be amazing. Um, Before we get to the January sixth hearing, because we are going to be talking about that a little bit (laughs) in this episode. We got to talk about the biggest indie news of the week. If not the year. If not the year. It's for all you lovers out there, all of you romantic people. You know, times are hard right now. You're looking for a little romance in the world. Something to reassure you that love is alive and that beautiful things can still happen. And that happened this week because we found out that Lana Del Rey, the, uh, the queen of indie rock, if we can call her that, We'll call her the, the, the like the the grand madam of indie mm. rock. Much better title. Yes, she is dating this dude. <laughs> not just any dude. This dude from Salem. Yes. Not not the town Salem. The the the, the goth doom hip hop group from the early two thousand tens. I don't know if are they still putting out record. We talked about them recently. Fairly recently yeah. on the show, I because there was, did they put out new music or was it just talking about like their Fader Fort anniversary? They have yet to, I think, remark upon the Fader Fort incident, which I think is still their definitive work. But um, they put out a new album. It was either towards the end of twenty twenty one or twenty twenty, but like fairly recently. Yes, they put out a new record and it was not bad. But um, yeah. So you said Jack Donahue. Um, like uh, the obvious joke is like, oh, I thought it was like Jack Donaghy yeah. dating Lana Del Rey, and if like Thirty Rock had made it to 2011, that would totally be a plausible plot line. See, I didn't even uh, call him Jack Jack Donahue. I just called him the dude from Salem because <laughs> it's kind of like you know, like the dude uh, from Eve Six. Like you don't need to know the name. It's just he's the Max du- Collins. Yeah, but <laughs> you say Max Collins, most people they give you a blank stare. You say the dude from Eve Six, you're like, okay, I know who you're talking about. Like Jack Donahue. I didn't know his name was Jack Donahue. I just knew he was like a dude from Salem. Um, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, yeah Jack Donaghy dating Lana Del Rey. That would have been an amazing plot line on 30 rock if that could have happened but this is an even more amazing plot line for us on IndieCast. you got salem you have lana del rey my i don't know like if any details have come out about how this happened in my mind it's like a when harry met sally situation where like maybe they met each other at south by southwest in the early 2010s they became friends and then maybe over time it blossomed into romance and that's where we are right now. I mean, do we know anything about how this happened? 
No, all I saw was like a picture of them outside of like Cook County Jail, which, you know, and I, like beforehand, like there was a time where I think Lana Del Rey was like dating like a TV cop yes. or something like that. So I figured it's just this dude. And the most shocking component of it isn't the fact that these two, you know, 2011 era hipster runoff, like throw darts at the wall type people uh, are together. It's what they actually look like. Um the best part about this is, like, depending on what, like, region of the country you live in, there was, like, a joke about, like, who the, like, what this couple looks like, you know, compared to who you went to high school with. Like, for me, <laughs> it, like, Jack Donahue, and I call, like, if I didn't know the names of the people in Salem, I would not be the person I am today. But uh, <laughs> he looks like kind of the guys I remember from, like, I don't know, they, like a guy from gym class. It's like, right. oh, yeah, that's a guy I only saw in gym class. And, you know, he worked at the pizza joint. Now he opens a pizza joint. And they had like three kids. Uh, and they still live in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Like, they look like people I saw at like the fucking pizza joint when I went back home. Yeah, like for me, like the dude from Salem, he looks like a guy whose locker would have been next to mine. And I would occasionally just see him. Like, I would never, I wouldn't see him anywhere else in the school. But I'd only see him sometimes next to my locker in our, you know, we'd be friendly, but like we'd never talk. We just kind of give each other like friendly nods every now and then. Like he, like that would be that guy. And then Lana Del Rey would be like the girl that um, was, uh, like she was like maybe like one of the prettiest girls in the school. But then she just kind of stayed in, in the town after high <laughs> school and just kind of worked locally. And this guy who had the locker next to me. Like, maybe they just ended up kind of getting together because they were, like, some of the only people from high school that were still in the same town. So <laughs> You've written a lot of Del Rey song right there. <laughs> like, you wouldn't... Like, they wouldn't have dated in high school, but, like, they end up together, like, ten years later because, you know, they're both in the same town and they don't know anyone else. And it's sort of like, okay, well, we might as well date, you know? We have no other <laughs> options. That's what it looked like to me. But, um... We're we're a Lana Del Rey Salem shipper podcast now, so I mean, you know, you mentioned how Lana was dating the TV cop for a while, and now she's dating the dude from Salem. I don't want to ascribe cynical motives to her love life, but it, like, are all of her relationships like a low key troll at this point? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You could also. It, our lives are performance art. You let's just like I, I think that would be a great Lana Del Rey interview quote that our <laughs> lives are performance art and everything we do is to be viewed through the prism of this brand that we created for ourselves. And I don't think IndieCast is immune from that either. No, so. no and, and again, God bless her. You know, mid July yeah. is slow. <laughs> slow news for us. So the, it, it's always great to have a Lana Del Rey story to talk about. Um, let's get to the January sixth hearing which I think people have been waiting for us to talk about on this show finally. But it, we do have a hook now because yes. this week there was a guy, one of the Oath Keepers. And did this guy storm the Capitol? Was he one of the stormers? or was he, I, I don't know exactly the story on the specific guy that we're going to yeah, talk Oath about. Keep, Oath Keeper to me just sounds like a like one of those doom metal bands. So like I'm I'm not I'm not overly familiar with their work. I get them confused with the Promise Keepers. I'm a '90s guy, but well, they're like they, they were definitely there. Yeah, they're like the Proud Boys. Like they're in that you know subgenre of alt right. <laughs> they're the French Kicks to the Interpol of Proud Boys. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, this guy who testified at the January 6th hearings, he testified. Wearing a Descendants t-shirt. 
this the descendants of course being the legendary SoCal pop punk band. And he's repping the, the descendants at the January sixth hearing. And of course there was a a big outcry on Twitter about this from from punk fans who love the descendants. And I think the descendants themselves they put out a statement disavowing this guy. Saying like, you know, we we don't line up with this guy at all. Um you, I mean, you and I were talking. We, we were, you know, putting together our outline, and it, it's funny because you and I have similar experiences with this. You know, I used to be on Facebook, and I'm not anymore. And one of the reasons I'm not is that there were a lot of like punk dudes in their 40s and 50s, and like punk guys age terribly. Oh, do they ever? I mean, it might be the worst kind of music fan on the planet. You know, especially the guy who. Like, doesn't have a sense of humor about punk. Like, they still take punk extremely serious in their 40s and 50s. And they look at it not just as a kind of music, but, like, as a lifestyle. And there's, like, this oppositional kind of cranky perspective. And it just curdles into something reactionary in middle age. And most of the time, it's harmless. You know, like, there was this one guy that I knew on, like, mainly through Facebook who, like, would always want to talk to me about Kanye West because <laughs> they always want to talk about Kanye West. I I didn't even think about that, but I do that's such a common thread. And this they, is like late odds early, talk about Kanye. This is like good, the good Kanye. You know, like when Kanye was great and he would want to talk about Kanye because Kanye signified I think popular music to him and and he hated popular music. And then so he talked about how bad Kanye was and how great Teenage Battle Rocket was. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was horrible. But, you know, that's relatively harmless. He's not an oath keeper, you know, but that's kind of like the logical extreme, I feel like, of that worldview. I mean, because would you say, I mean, like, because you've had old punk experience too, right? I mean, it, it's a tough crowd. Oh my God, is it a tough crowd? Yeah, I mean, I think of them compared to like the old, you know, the old white hip hop head, like the guy who was super into like Wu Tang or whatever in their like teens and college years and then. You know, they grow up to open a restaurant that has old dirty bastard <laughs> pictures on the walls. Like that's like corny to me, but and, and maybe offensive aesthetically. But it's not like it, it's harmless. But man, you combine the like super idealistic, hard headed uh, politics of punk, like in the youth, and also the kind of meathead component to it, and like there is. The the punk rock to like alt right pipeline is so brimming. I mean, um, I, like when I listen to No Plus Ones, the podcast with uh, our pals Dan Ozzy and David Anthony, like there's at least twenty minutes talking about like what are what is the guy in the crow mags up to now, and like <laughs> nine times out of ten, it's like anti vax cancel culture. Like you couldn't have the Sex Pistols in twenty twenty two. Like. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's what it is to me. And like, God, how, how fucking demoralizing must it be to, I mean, look, you and I, we, we, we have some degree of like fans, you know, we can't control what they do. Uh, but to like, you know, be, a like a punk rock band whose politics could not be more fucking obvious. You know, we mentioned Raise Against the Machine, you know, uh, like how demoralizing must that be? Well, and the Descendants are not like a political band 
Like, I, it, it, are they? Not totally. A little bit. Like, okay. they had songs, like, back in the day about, like, you know, Proposition 13 in California. Like, okay. They're, they're, like, I mean, also they have, like, you know, locker room stuff and, like, how girls don't like them. But, like, you can assume <laughs> that they are, they're, like, smart guys. Like, one of them's like, a chemist. Like, they're, right. they're, they're, they're political in the sense that, like, in a similar way to, like, say, bad religion or what have you, where you can just assume that they're against suburban conformity. Yeah, I guess. I just think of them more, like you said of being like a goofball type band. Yeah. You know, I don't think of them, I mean, bad religion to me is like, they're, they're more polemical, I think, than the, the the descendants are. Like, you know, bad religion is putting, I, I feel like they're more explicitly political. Than the, oh, yeah. But I haven't, I mean, I haven't gone deep on the descendants. I mean, they were a band that, you know, growing up in the 90s, if you were interested in punk or indie rock, like you would eventually get around to the descendants at some point. And like, I thought they were a good band. I've not listened to them in a super long time. Um, I do think even if this guy wasn't an oath keeper, you know, like a guy in his fifties wearing a, a descendants t-shirt, I think is kind of a funny thing just specifically, but I don't know. We may be stepping on some toes here in our own audience because you know this and we're going to really step on some toes here with our next topic here and so we'll wade gently into this um you know because look we respect the 45 year old indie rock fan i think i think that's been established that we addressed we addressed directly the 45 year old indie rock fan i think we service them a lot of our topics we we sort of are them yeah we are them (laughs) we're gonna be talking about interpol in this episode so obviously you know you are our people but you know we were getting ready to do this episode this week and you were messaging me about possible banter topics and and you were like you know unwound and archers of loaf both announced reunions this week we should talk about this and i was like yeah we probably should the problem is is that i don't give a shit about either band (laughs) Yes, the waiting gently that that we promised. Pulling the old razzle dazzle switcheroo. Um, I'm not saying they're bad. You know, I I don't have an opinion on them really one way or the other. I I, I know Archers of Loaf a little bit more than Unwound, but I just don't care about either band. I don't have a strong opinion, and like you don't either, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there I saw quite a few uh, of the same type of tweet uh, this past week, which is you know the 45 year old indie rock fan saying how scene they felt by the unwound unwound tour announcement which that tour seems to be doing pretty damn well i mean it's only in a couple cities but they've sold out they've had to do like two dates in la two dates in san francisco etc um and unwound is the sort of band that i see talked a lot about in circles in which i run like they're one of those bands that was like kind of a big deal in like the late 90s early 2000s but have been ignored for the most part, by big indie. So now they're like kind of retconned as being possibly emo. That's just what happens to yeah. these sort of bands. It's happened a lot but, with a lot of yes. 90s indie rock bands. Yeah, like Slint is somehow right. like emo now, Le Savvy Fave. But yeah, I mean, like this is maybe like the most controversial opinion I might ever levy on this show. Like this is basically like 1975 level type stuff. But um, Unwound, I've tried list like Leaves turn inside you that's the one that's the one that shows up on year end lists and like is seen as a masterpiece one of the most monumentally dull albums like i've ever listened to because it showed up on a uh decade list it's like i i put it on i keep putting it on thinking maybe it'll click but it's i just think of like the most boring parts of sonic youth and slint and fugazi and like olympia punk as a whole and it's 
Um, I just remember, like, I, I, it's like, I guess you have to, you had to be there sort of thing, but I was there, you know, like yeah. this was 2001 and I was like, why would I like, this is what I think indie rock is. I'm going to go listen to like placebo and cash money and Missy Elliott. Like yeah. I was a teen unwound turned me into a college age optimist. Yeah. There's like a sternness or like a humorlessness that to that band that it makes me, it's hard to connect with it for me. And as far as Archers of Loaf go, you know, I used to work at the AV Club, and there was a strong Archers of Loaf <laughs> contingent at the AV Club oh, when I yeah. was there. Like, people that just looked at, like, icky metal as being a masterpiece of 90s rock. And, like, people getting excited about, like, new Crooked Fingers albums, you know, treating those, like, as, as an event. So, like, I was around that a lot. And, you know, again, like, I, I think they're fine. I just feel like if you have pavement... And guided by voices, and built a spill, and neutral milk hotel, and you know just run down the list of like '90s indie rock. It's gonna be a while before you get to Archers of Loaf, and I feel like there's just so much other music in that lane that I think is way better and that I care about more. So that that just my I don't think they're a bad band. I think they're a good band. They're a fine band. Yeah. And look, if you're excited about these comebacks. Awesome. I'm happy for you. Go to the show, buy the t-shirt, have a great time. It's going to be awesome. Tip the babysitter some extra money. <laughs> it's going to be a blast. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, maybe we should just leave it at that. You know? Yeah. Leave it on a Harness positive note. Harness of the note. slums, though. Harness of the slums. That's a fucking banger. Is that an Archers of Loaf song? Yes, it's an Archers of Loaf <laughs> Like I said, I'm listening to all these other bands. I, I've not gone deep on Archers yeah. of Love. Maybe, Maybe they're going to hit me. At a later date, and I'll eat my words. Um, before uh, we get to our mailbag, we, we should talk for a bit about the new Black Midi album that's that's dropping on Friday. Dropping today as this episode posts. It's called Hellfire. Uh, we didn't put this in the meat of our episode, because we're going to be talking about Interpol. But we should talk about this record, because this is a band that we both like. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like... I want to hear what you think about this record before I say what I think about this album. I, I want to see if I'm off base or if maybe we're on the same page here. Yeah. Well, first off, we get I, I think anytime we talk about Black Midi, you got to mention the fact the singer's name is Jordy Green. <laughs> right. Like every time I, 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 I've been following this band for like four mm -hmm. years and every time I see this dude's name, it's like if you were to have a TV show with like a fake UK post-punk band, like that name would get thrown out of the writer's room for being on the nose. And, um, and, and also just the way he looks, he looks like a total yes. shorty. He, he looks like what his name sounds like, you know, it's, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. He, but, um, he is like super on the nose. He is like a walking caricature of UK post-punk, but yes. he's somehow real. Yes. And so, um, yeah, with this band, it's like, I respect, them i like their existence because um you know if we're talking about like 45 year old indie rock dudes they remind me of the type of band that you would see like in the mid 2000s or whatever like that would just kind of annoy the shit out of you but they would also be like really raved about by indie publications and it would be you know i'm not saying i like them as much as animal collective but you know i'd listen to animal collective in 2003 i'm like what the fuck is this shit but they were so hyped i'm like oh i'll give it another chance and i end up loving them so they have that sort of divisiveness that challenging pretentious nature that makes them i don't know stand out in what's otherwise a pretty agreeable state of big indie 
I love their pitchfork performance last year. Um, they had like a couch and like a wardrobe on stage. It was super theatrical. Like I was not expecting that. Um, and so, you know, no matter what they do, regardless of how much like I actually, I'm going to do in like air quotes here, enjoy their music. I respect their existence and I trust their trajectory. Uh, this, this one though, like I, I saw Stereo Gum called it Fiery Furnaces meets Mr. Bungle. And boy, <laughs> that is a good piece of music criticism right there because you know, what I was alluding to before, it's like, yeah, this is kind of like a fiery furnaces type band where, you know, when they, when they get, when they're, when they're, when they go over their skis, they go way the fuck over. And, you know, Cavalcade, uh, Schlegenheim, you know, at their most pretentious and unwieldy, at least they kind of banged. This one is, uh, yeah, I think they just take this one in directions that are, like, I don't think they fail to pull off what they're trying. It's just like what they're trying isn't maybe worth pulling off. Yeah, yeah, I'd love that Fiery Furnaces meets Mr. Bungle because that could either be a profound compliment or like the worst thing you could say about a record, depending on your perspective. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it feels very apropos. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in a similar place to you. I saw Black Midi live on their first tour when they were touring behind Schlegenheim. Saw them like in a small club. And I thought it was awesome. I, I loved their live show, especially the drummer. Super physical drummer, just all over the kit. He was. I, I just watched that guy most of the shows. It was. It was amazing. Um, but with this record, I feel like they've crossed a wackiness Rubicon, where <laughs> they're moving from like a quirky band, like you were saying, like a theatrical kind of interesting, uh, somewhat confrontational group, to just being kind of like an annoying band i mean like this record to me it's just like a a little too much to take and i do feel like they started in a place where i watched them and i thought wow these guys this could be like the new king crimson you know just like an Mm. awesome aggressive prog band just crazy time signature changes but like a lot of like power behind it and I just feel like increasingly they're moving in this direction that feels more like a less Claypool side project. Like, not even Primus, but, like, some, like, side project where Les Claypool is like, I'm going to really Les Claypool it up here. Like, I'm I'm going to go full-on just whackmeister in this project. <laughs> and I just think, you know, I, again, I'm like you. I like this band generally. I appreciate that there's a group like this that has some prominence that is coloring outside the lines, is doing something very unconventional. I, I I really appreciate that in theory. But I do think it would be nice if someone could sit these lads down and say, you need to tone it down a little bit. You know, we need to settle down and focus on, I think, what the strengths are of this band, which is, again, their instrumental firepower. They're yeah. a very powerful band. These guys can play. And I just think that there's a premium being put on in the band for again this kind of like wacky sense of humor you know mr bungle was mentioned like it's kind of like a frank zappa aspect to it too and i like frank zappa but i don't know i it was turning me off on this record i have to say too that i wasn't a fan of the pitchfork profile that was published to them uh i think that was this week where yeah. like the lead singer he's taking shots at Ed Sheeran, which it's like, come on, really? Uh, we're like yeah. making fun of, like we're taking shots at Ed Sheeran, you know? And then Muse and Green Day, which by the way, you don't make fun of Muse on our watch here and get away with it. 
are boys and muse. That's our job to make fun of muse. <laughs> it's not your job. Uh, you know, we can make fun of them, but if anyone else does, we, we will defend muse to the death. Um, but I was like, I don't know. There was there was something about that interview that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So that coupled with me not really liking this record, I was like, oh, I'd like you guys, but this feels like a stumble. Yeah, I think that like, I, 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 you know, again, I've written enough profiles where if a band like says something totally innocuous about another band, it's like, oh yeah, this is going to be like the centerpiece of my profile. So yeah, I get that. But also like, they might not be any muse. I, I think that we have to mention, I can't believe you went this long with, talking about less Claypool side projects and not bring up Oysterhead. What a fit. <laughs> what a failure on your end. Oh, that's true. <laughs> but you know, I think I guess I think of that as a Trey Anastasio side project that yeah, Les right, Claypool that. tends to be in. And and just to clarify, you know, I'm not knocking like the profile itself. I I'm, I'm saying like the band, like how they come yes. off. But you're cuz yeah, if if you're interviewing someone and they're ripping a band, that's for sure going in the profile. So I don't I don't fault the writer for doing that. I think the writer did a good job with that piece. I'm just saying that the band themselves annoyed me reading that yeah. that story. So and maybe they're annoying people, so that was like a a good reflection of of what you know they're like. Uh so yeah, good piece, annoying band a little bit, but I still like them. I still hope they kind of just reel it back a little bit. Um let's get to our mailbag here. And again, thank you everyone for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, if you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, Ian, do you want to read this one? Sure thing. Okay, so we got Dana in Chicago uh, writing in uh, saying, I, IDK, I, that's I don't know, for those of you not fluent in internet Argo. I don't know if I have a real question here, but the but is the Minions line the new Peppa Pig line? Seems fair. Uh, Dana then posted a screenshot of the Minions Rise of Gru 6.0 review, same as Foxing. Foxing's getting a lot of so- they're getting a lot of catching a lot of strays in this episode. <laughs> um, okay, here's a more serious question. Any thoughts on the new Pitchfork site rebrand? I had to make three full swipes to get down to the reviews, and it feels like a sort of crossing of the Rubicon. Uh, for the importance of record reviews. How do you feel about the waning influence of straight-up music criticism compared to profiles, coverage, lists, etc.? Warmly, Dana in Chicago. So we have the crossing of the... You said wackiness Rubicon before? This is a different kind of Rubicon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for writing in, Dana. Um, I don't think we're interested that much in talking about the redesign of the of the website um, as much as the larger question about reviews being diminished. And... I've seen other people make this point, and I don't know if people are reading into the placement of reviews on the website too much, but you know, there does seem to be the suggestion that reviews are being buried a little bit on the site, uh, and then other types of coverage are being, uh, you know, kind of put higher and made more prominent. Yeah, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm I would guess that the most read articles in any given day on Pitchfork are news items. You know, like if someone announces a tour or if Lana Del Rey is dating the dude from Salem or <laughs> the January 6th guy wearing the Descendant shirt, you know, stories like that would probably be the most read stories. Whereas the reviews, especially the reviews of bands that aren't that well known would probably be among the least read. I mean, I, again, I don't know that for a fact, but I know that that is true almost everywhere. Like at Uproxx, for instance, that's generally true. The most read stories are news stories and because those are the things that tend to go viral, uh, much more likely than if you're reviewing a, you know, 
a record by a little known you know punk band and you give it like a 6.8 you know that's not going to be read as much um you know, I, I feel like some critics respond to stuff like this, and they and they look at it as sort of like the end of music criticism, like if like if the conventional album review is being diminished. And by the way, this has been going on for a long time, and it's not just at Pitchfork, it's everywhere. And I mean, I, I think it's been going on really since the advent of social media. I think social media has sort of uh, expedited the diminishment of, you know, the, the, the old-fashioned album review. Um I have to say that, to be frank, most album reviews are pretty boring to read. <laughs> They're formulaic, and they rely on jargon that critics use in reviews, and they don't really make sense to like the average uh, reader. And there's so many avenues now for talking about music that I think the sort of the core desire for people to learn about music and to like discover music and even to hear conversations about it, that's not going away. It's just that it's evolving and going in different directions. You have podcasts like this one, you have critics on YouTube, you have social media, you know, people talking about music there. So I don't know. I, I mean, look, we came up writing reviews, so there is a sentimental attachment to it, but I don't necessarily look at it as like the sky is falling. I, I just think it's an evolution brought about by technology and I think it feels pretty natural. I don't know how do you feel about it? I mean, you are like a world champion album <laughs> review writer. I I have written more pitchfork reviews than literally anyone in human history. That's incredible. Um, that's literally uh, true, right? Yeah, I I looked it up um not like just basically doing a search on the website. You can enter in a reviewer's name and see how many they've written. Uh 884 as of this recording. Wow. And just to check, like, because I've only been there since 2007, I'm like, okay, maybe Mark Richardson or Philip Sherburne. I've got them beat by at least 200. Wow. Um, it's an unbreakable record. You're like I'm Cal Ripken. To, you're, you're like, I'm hoping to get to 1,000. You're the Iron um, Man. You're the Iron Man of Pitchfork. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, like, as someone who's came up writing reviews, and that's like my primary format of expression, uh, you know, can't help but be a little bummed about it. Like, I'm feeling like, uh, you know, like I remember Tim from Strand of Oaks called us uh, the Stockton and Malone of music criticism. I feel more like Mark Eaton, the guy on the jazz who was like seven four and could block shots and do that's just about it. And like that within a span of five years, that type of NBA player was completely drummed out of the league. Like my skill set doesn't really translate, and it's obviously just an existential bummer. But you know, like regardless of how you feel about emotionally about the rebrand it's it's so much more widespread like this is just an example of it as opposed to like a leader i mean rolling stone used to be you know the most impactful review source on the fucking planet um it would be a significant part of the print version now when you go to the print version it's like one or two pages tops most are capsule reviews i go to rolling stone mostly to get better call solo recaps and (laughs) You know, they have some really intensive political coverage. But, I mean, yeah, reviews, like Steve said, uh, for many reasons. In fact, they're kind of boring. Uh, I don't need, like, I can listen to the album first before someone tells me. I love reviews because, like, I don't have a lot of time to find new music. I need someone I trust to explain to me in plain terms, hey, should this be worthy of my time? I like them. Like, I'd rather read that than, like, a profile or some sort of, like, big pop culture 
conceptual piece. Um, and also, it's like, I'm 42 years old. This game is a young person's game. It's a young, naive person's game who's willing to work for not a lot of money. Uh, and so, you know, cycle life type shit. Well, you haven't been drummed out because you have entered the podcast world. Now you have millions <laughs> of people listening to you on this show. So you've obviously evolved. You've moved with the times, which is what you got to do in order to, to hang around. Um, I am surprised that Pitchfork isn't yet doing things like Better Call Saul recaps. I wonder if that's going to be happening down the pike because I know for me, like I've worked as a, I've worked in the media now for uh, like, 22 years, if you can believe it. And I've worked in all types of mediums. I've worked in daily newspapers, all weeklies and websites. I've never worked for a pure music uh, publication or website. And it's really, really hard to exist if you're only doing music. Because even in culture writing, there's not as big of an audience for music writing as there is for TV writing or movies or, you know, and then expanding beyond that, going into politics and, and what have you. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see how that evolves. As you mentioned, Rolling Stone now. Um, and th- I mean, this has been true for a while with Rolling Stone. I mean, they have a history of this, obviously, going back to the to the 60s. But, you know, they cover all kinds of things, not just music. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see how that evolves over time, like with some of the big kind of standalone music places, because it, I, I, it's got to be hard to, to, to make it just doing that, you know? Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll divide and conquer the, the, the bear recap market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Ian, uh, we did not live up to our promise this week. We promised to get the meat to our listeners within 30 minutes. We went a little bit over this week. We had just too much banter material gotta let that meat marinate <laughs> exactly i had to leave it on the we had to leave it on the grill for a few extra minutes just to uh, make sure it was fully cooked but i think we're ready to go here let's talk about interpol they have a new album out today it's called the other side of make-believe this is their seventh record or you could say it's the seventh version of the same interpol record that has come out over the past 20 years uh this is their first album since 2018's marauder uh and it was uh produced by flood very famous for working with u2 and nine inch nails and depeche mode and smashing pumpkins Uh, (laughs) and also alan Mulder, who has worked with the band in the past um how do we want to approach this ian do we want to dive into the album itself or do we just want to talk about turn on the bright lights the entire time because i feel like if you talk about interpol you event you inevitably end up talking about turn on the bright lights. I should mention that that album turns twenty uh, later this year. I assume that there'll be a twentieth anniversary edition of that record. There's always like an anniversary edition of that album. I feel like every five years. Uh, <laughs> so that I'm sure there's going to be like you know like a red vinyl version or something. You know whatever the case may be. Uh, but how do we want to dive into this? How much do we care about this album versus the rest of Interpol's career? Well, I think you already tipped your hand by saying this is like the seventh Interpol album, just like a minor variation of Turn on the Bright Lights. It's like, you know, when Taco Bell releases a new, uh, like, Crunchwrap Gordita, how, like, this one has guacamole and uh, queso or something like that. Um, (laughs) But look, it's still fucking satisfying, particularly if you, like, you have it at 11 uh, 11 p.m. at night and you're fucking wasted. But Exactly. uh, You've had some drinks and maybe some other things, (laughs) just like Interpol itself. You know, you're out late at night 
the taco and the Interpol record both got on very well. Exactly. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I th- like, I wondered if, I mean, talking about like Interpol's history was like particularly interesting because, you know, like you said, they've been consistent. They make the similar sound. They come back every three or four years, make a record, which I guess really distinguishes them from like a lot of their meet me in the bathroom peers who like make these colossal failures, take long hiatuses or um, and I think it's int- it's always interesting to talk about a new Interpol for this reason, because you're not just talking about like Interpol, you're talking about this sound, this aesthetic and this era really, which is completely out of step with right now. So it's like a referendum on a much, much, much larger topic. And so, um, you know, how much you like this record, similar to how much you like Marauder or El Pintor the 2014 record or Interpol, the 2010 record um, really depends upon how much you like turn on the bright lights. Like I would love to meet somebody who became Interpol pilled based on like El Pintor. It's like, nah, I don't really fuck with turn on the bright lights or antics, but I think they really hit their stride with Marauder. Well, is it possible that there were people that came in on our love to admire because that was their major label uh, debut? Like, I wonder if that record has a certain audience that was a particular age when that dropped. Maybe, you know, they were listening to K-Rock and not reading Pitchfork, and that's how they heard Interpol. Like, is that possible? It's possible, but I, I, it's possible that's the sort of album that maybe, like, got them into Interpol. I've seen that many, many times with bands who are, you know, on major labels after being on indie ones but like i just want to see like no i only listen to post helping tour <laughs> i only listen to second era of matador um but yeah turn on the bright lights i mean w- that's one of my favorite albums to talk about just because it is so reflective of a set of values which have become uh a little bit outmoded uh in current indie rock i know they were the they were uh the i guess you would call them like a victim they were like the biggest loser in like Pitchfork's much um, remarked upon re uh, re review, uh, which uh, re review uh, feature, which I think was like one of their most popular in like the past couple of years. So yeah, they they gave they turn on the bright lights originally got a nine point five I believe from Pitchfork, mm-hmm. and then they rescored it and gave it a seven point oh, which. We don't support that. We're, <laughs> no, we're, we're not going to support that. I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that. I think 9.5, that feels right to me still. But, you know, again, this is the 45-year-old indie fan community speaking out. We do have a stance here. Uh, we are more likely to defend the 2002 indie rock album than we are to dismiss it. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. You know, I was thinking about Interpol, and that record in particular, and it seems to me like the kind of record that a 21-year-old who's in college, maybe in a big city, you know, they're experimenting with drinking and, and drugs and maybe they smoke clove cigarettes, you know, that kind of person. Turn on the Bright Light still seems like a record that would totally appeal to that kind of person. But I don't know. I, has Interpol entered that, like, Cure, Smith's, Joy Division, Depeche Mode lane of like legacy acts that like every generation discovers at a certain time like are they in that lane have they graduated to that i have no sense of that i think that they're maybe not at that level where like there is every given year like a new batch of 18 to 
or even no, I, let's go back like four like teenagers. Let's just call them teenagers who are guaranteed to get into the Smiths and the Cure and so forth. Like if you're of a certain mindset if you're like a kind of outcast a little dark like you're gonna get into those bands interpol is like maybe not on that level they're certainly not on that level they're just not as popular but i feel like they're a band whose fan base gets like replenished every five years they are massive in mexico i can say that for certain um they can still tour stadiums um they are an institution um and i mean you you brought a point where it's like this is a band maybe you get into when you're 21. Like when Turn on the Bright Lights dropped, and it was 2002. I was post college, living at home, just like a really depressing life. And what I would do, like my social life, was taking New Jersey Transit to New York City. I would see my friends who were working in i banking, so they were making stupid amounts of money working 80 hours a week. And when we got together on the weekends, we do what you might expect <laughs> from people who are in that position. And Turn on the Bright Lights was fucking magic. Like that made all that stuff sound like such a higher calling. Like it just sounded like this big spiritual quest to get like really fucked up uh, in New York City at the age of 22. And you know what? If like, I think if Interpol doesn't hit you at that age, I don't think they'll ever hit you, which I think, which is why I'm like, I understand, you know, someone who didn't, re who, for whom it didn't resonate, you know, in their youth, like the, uh, like Jill Maves who wrote that review. Yeah. It, it's like with Weezer in a way. It's like, if Weezer doesn't get you when you're teenagers, you're not going to like them when you turn 30. Well, but the difference with Weezer is that Weezer has, you know, they, they crossed the wackiness Rubicon, you know, years ago. <laughs> Uh, they've really changed over time. Interpol has, you know, basically towed the line of like what they are for the past two decades. And you know, like on Twitter this week, I made a joke that the new Interpol album finds them experimenting with hip hop and ska, and there's lots of saxophones on it, and blah blah blah. And most people knew right away that I was joking because Interpol would never do that. Interpol sounds like Interpol. That's the joke, and it's also. It would be terrible if they experimented with all those things or, or, or whatever the case may be because, you know, their interpolness, I think, in some ways is a hindrance because they have a very sort of narrow spectrum that they work in. But I ultimately think that it's, that it's a strength, that the reason why anyone would want to listen to this new album is because they like Interpol, maybe they liked them like you said, like when they were in their twenties and it reminds them of a certain time of their life. And, you know, to, to make a very common illusion when we talk about things like this, I mean, there is like an ACDC element to Interpol in the sense that they just make Interpol records and you wouldn't want them to do anything else. So, you know, when we say that they just make the same record over and over again, I don't think that's necessarily a criticism with this band, even if like those reiterations are lesser than the first record that they that they put out. Yeah, I mean, to the point of like they wouldn't put hip hop in there. I mean, Paul Banks has made actual hip hop records, like Everyone on My Dick, like they supposed to be the much uh, the much celebrated uh, mixtape he made. He did some albums with RZA, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's not that like Interpol needs to like switch up their sound or what have you. It's like I think they're just still kind of toying with ways 
to, I don't know, ease into old age. Like, uh, I, I reviewed this album for Pitchfork. I don't know when the, it runs. It might run today. It might not. But I brought up, by the way, era Red Hot Chili Peppers, perhaps as a model for like what a really uh, excellent late stage Interpol album might sound like. Because, you know, they like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You could call Red Hot Chili Peppers post-punk at one point. Um, it's like, they, you know, once they kind of like smooth things out and get more melodic and maybe a little more laid back and just self-aware, I don't know. Like, it's not impossible. I also think that like this band sort of died when Carlos D left, not just because he's like an incredible bassist, but because he represents so much of like what made Interpol, uh, distasteful to some people, but also like kind of what made them awesome. Uh, that's sort of self-aware but like not totally self-aware himbo aspect to the band which is sort of locked into 2002 yeah and, and like a genuine rock star presence too i mean i remember seeing him on stage i saw interpol on the tour for turn on the bright lights they played in a small club and it was amazing to see a band like that in this grubby club because they looked like interpol you know it was like a little it wasn't maybe quite as slick as it became later but like they were wearing the suits and they looked like rock stars. And it's just different than most bands that you see at that level. Like, they just didn't look like a small-time band. They already looked like a band that was playing arenas. And that sense of self was there from the beginning. And I think that that's, again, one of their strengths. That's one of the things I think that makes Interpol, if you like them, it's what makes them great. I have to say, too, that, like, you know, talking about Carlos D, I think, like, the most underrated aspect of Interpol is how well they groove. Like, especially those early records, they have, like, a great rhythm section. Carlos D and then Sam Fogarino, who's still in the band. Um, you know, th there was just, like, a real drive to those songs. And when you see them live, especially, like, they were, like, a really good live band because of the rhythm section. And to segue into this new album, I think the weakness of it for me is that it doesn't groove as much as I want Interpol records to groove. Like I actually liked Marauder. I I think that's like a like a pretty good late period Interpol record because a lot of the songs sound like PDA. It seems like PDA is the model for that record, and I like Interpol the most in that mode. Whereas on this new album, I feel like NYC is the model. You know, there's a lot of mid tempo kind of plotting songs, and some of them are good, especially in the first half of the record. But that drive that I, I want from Interpol, that they especially had when Carlos D was there, but I think they also had it on Marauder, too. I don't get that as much from this album. Yeah, I, I think you, like, you mentioned the fact that it's, like, mid-tempo, and I wouldn't even say, like, uh, N, or NYC or what have you is, like, the model. Like, may, I don't know if, like, my I have brain worms or I've just been, like, completely broken by the last couple of years of indie rock, but... The beat for Tame Impala's eventually uh, just shows up so much throughout. <laughs> and it's like, you had Dave Fridman on the last album. Why didn't you do it there? But yeah, it's, it's a bummer to hear uh, Sam Fogarino, who's like a fucking incredible drummer, super inventive and propulsive, just kind of stick to this like, like uh, straight eight note uh, hi-hat sort of beat. Um, and also like we could point out the fact that this album was like written remotely. Um, they, you know, they were all living in various parts of the world, trading the songs, uh, on, you know, 
then they got together in Scotland to record the record. But yeah, there's just not that sense of like space or like, you know, for lack of a better term, vibe going on here. So that puts the the onus squarely on, you know, Paul Banks, who I think he does not get enough credit for being funny. Like he is really fucking funny. He's always been funny. And all those lines that people bring up on Turn on the Bright Lights as being like cringe. It's he's playing a, he's playing a part. Uh, and it's I, I think that part really works. The lyrics, I think, are the best part of this new record, but the songs just aren't really memorable. Um, you know, it's like they're <laughs> this album made me reach for the first editor's album instead, where it's like, <laughs> I want this sound, but I just want some dumbass bangers with like some hooks. It's and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's like the most damning possible thing that you could say about an Interpol record is that you'd rather listen to the first editor's one. But um, I mean, look, Tony's a great song. Fables is a great song. I could put together 15 to 20 minutes from this album that if I were to go see Interpol live, I wouldn't go to the bathroom during these songs. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit upon, though. Like again, the weakness of this album, you know, the fact that it was recorded remotely. I think Marauder was like a live in the studio type record, and it had that fun element that you're talking about. That's why you reached for the editor's record. You wanted something a little bit more fun, and I think that's a, a another underrated aspect of of Interpol. Like they're sort of fun rock and rollness. You know, they don't really get talked about that way in the same way that the Strokes are. You know, like is this it? That's always looked at as like the ultimate early two thousands. NYC out on the town type record. I think Turn on the Bright Lights is, if it's not the equal of Is This It, it's like like very small notch below. And I think it has a similar vibe of like, it just makes being in a city and partying feel so romantic and fun and seductive. And that rock and rollness aspect of Interpol, it's missing on this record. Like I wish this record was a little bit more fun. You know, because I think the fun aspect of Interpol, the himbo quality, the, you know, like you're doing cocaine in a shitty bars, bathroom stall type thing. That is a big part of their appeal. And I'm just not getting it as much on this record as I would want from an Interpol record. I think at the end of the day, it's like no one's even bothering to say like return to form for Interpol because I think <laughs> like, you know, it's like they're like the U2, like their best album since Octung Baby, like every single album. Like I think that most Interpol fans like are very realistic in that like you can't hope for a return to form for Interpol because what you're really looking for is you returning to being 22 or whenever it is when you first heard Interpol. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? You know, you mentioned earlier in the episode, it's like mid-July, things have slowed down. Real-life work has gotten super busy for me, and I haven't been able to delve into much new music. But hey, that leaves the lane open for old music. So um, I've been really, this past week, into the Blood Brothers. This always seems to happen when I like when there's a new Fleet Foxes album or a new or I see them live because as I make clear like five times a year, one of the guys from Blood Brothers is now in Fleet Foxes. He's the guy who plays maracas and upright bass and French horn. 
Um, and I don't know, maybe it's like the prettiness of Fleet Foxes that like makes me boomerang into Burn Piano While and Burn, which I think is Blood Brothers' best album. It is a very 2003 album in that it was released on V2 Records and produced by Ross Robinson. Um, and I'll tell you, like, anytime I listen to that album, which isn't very often, like, if you're a Blood Brothers fan, even you will say that, like, this is not an everyday listen. This sounds like the best fucking album of all time when it's actually playing. Um, it makes me think of, like, source tags and codes in the same way where, um, you hear modern bands that take elements of it, but it still sounds like something that all the various offshoots of Screamo or Math Rock or Post Hardcore are, like, building to rather than, like, the genesis of it all. Um, yeah, I think it's just so, just a massive boost of energy in an otherwise slow time. Um, I mean, new music's pretty cool. Uh, old music, also pretty awesome. And, yeah, if you're feeling like uh, the world's uh, disintegrating and you just want to yell into the void, burn piano while and burn. For, uh, that, that's as good as it gets. Well, as is often the case in Recommendation Corner, I'm going to go in a completely opposite direction from Ian with my recommendation. I want to talk about an album called Moonshine by a project of Dave Hartley from The War on Drugs. It's called Nightlands. He's put out a couple records under this name. And if you miss the interstitial instrumentals that used to exist on War on Drugs records, you might find an element of that on Nightlands. Uh, otherwise, this record doesn't really sound at all like the War on Drugs. It has almost like a New Agey type bent. Um, and it's definitely an area where uh, I think Dave gets to indulge other interests that he has musically that wouldn't really make sense on a War on Drugs record. And of course, the War on Drugs being um, Adam Granduciel's main project as well. He dominates the songwriting really on that band, even though it's opened up uh, more recently on their last record. But uh, this is just like a really kind of dreamy, beautiful record that has like a lot of interesting instrumental choices and production uh, uh, flourishes. And um, I think it's just like a really interesting record. And it, I think, is the platonic ideal of what a side project is in that it's never going to be an album that would challenge the war on drugs in terms of popularity, but it is a great showcase, I think, for a really great musician and like what he can do outside of the band that he would get to do in the band. So I think if you're a fan of the war on drugs, you definitely want to check out this record. If you don't like the war on drugs, I think that this record is actually different enough from that band that you could get something out of it that you wouldn't get from a war on drugs record. So again, it's called moonshine. It's by nightlands. Definitely recommend checking it out. Nightlands is one of the 884 reviews I've written for Pitchfork. I reviewed one of their albums in 2013. Good band. Also, excellent poster on Sixers Twitter. Yes, exactly. Dave is definitely a huge Sixers fan. Thank you all for listening to this episode this week. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.